Now, this past year um, in the country of Thailand, that's where my parents are from. That's probably the country outside of the U.S. that I, w I would identify the most with is, is Thailand. But in this past year, really November 2019, which was only a couple of months ago, and that, in fact, it was less than a couple of months ago, um, the Pope visited Thailand. Um, the Pope came and he came to visit with the, um, some of the Catholic churches that are in Thailand. And then I saw some pictures of some uh, Baptist uh, pastors and elders who were meeting with him to try to proclaim unity um, between Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholicism. Um, that grieved my heart to see that because some of those individuals, I know them, I've met them. Um, I've actually um, been invited by them to speak um, at, uh, at gatherings there just a few years ago. And it grieves my heart because when we think about unity, um, unity is something that we want between us. We certainly want to be united, but we need to be united in the truth. Amen. And I do not see the truth uh, being proclaimed out of Rome, certainly not from the Pope, not from the many clergy members. And in fact, I read this tweet on the Internet um, just a few days ago um, by a friar, and a friar is essentially a kind of a Catholic monk. And he said this, No matter how much one may have sinned, if he has fostered a genuine devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, he will never be lost. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us. And it's that kind of belief, it's that kind of theology that I think when we look at the book of Ephesians, and particularly the start of chapter 4, these passages that we've been looking at, we can look at that kind of statement and affirm that that is not the same Lord, that is not the same faith. There's a lot that is off about that statement, and so we need to be discerning. We want to affirm unity within the body of Christ and even with those at other churches, but we want to affirm it upon the truth of God's word. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to lend support um, to those who are doing more to distort God's word and providing a whole different gospel altogether. So this morning, we're going to continue in Ephesians chapter 4, and we've been going through this, and the last few weeks we've been going through it slowly um, because as we've been going through the beginning of chapter 4, we've been seeing all these commonalities that all true believers have in common with one another. And the title of the sermon this morning, The Unity That Christ Came to Establish, uh, we're now in Ephesians chapter 4, looking at uh, verse 5. And our purpose is to examine the unique sevenfold basis of unity that all believers share in common. That should lead us to a Christ-honoring unity within the church. So we want to be united, but we want to be united upon the right things. We want to be united in a way that's going to glorify God and not distort who he is or distort his truth or distort the gospel. It's just like what Paul said in the beginning of the book of Galatians. He said, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to the one we have proclaimed to you, he is to be accursed. And then he repeated again. He said, even if an angel from heaven proclaims to you a gospel contrary to the one we have proclaimed to you, he is to be accursed. And he makes those kinds of statements because the gospel is to be protected. The gospel is to be portrayed accurately according to God's word. The gospel in its simplicity is the only message that can ever provide us with eternal life, with eternal salvation. So as we take a look at these passages again, let's go ahead and start by looking at it. And I'll remind you that as we start chapter 4, there is a unity from verse 1 all the way down to verse 16. Uh, Paul starts in verse 1 with that central commandment um, to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. We'll start to read through this um, in, in just a moment. But from verse, verses 1 to 6, he starts off with that central commandment. And then he tells us to, to proceed with humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. But verse 3 tells us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that unity of the Spirit is then backed up by these seven divine realities that we all share in common, starting in verse 4, extending to verse 6. One body, one spirit, one hope. And verse 5 is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then after... We, 
those first six verses, starting in verse 7, from verses 7 to 10, um, Paul shifts his focus from really the unity that we have to how that unity is supported by diversity. From verses 7 to 10, he talks about the unique gifts that Christ gave to us. And then starting in verse 11, when we go to verse 11, verse 11, then he identifies very specific gifts that he gave to the church. Very specific gifts that he gave to the church for the sake of supporting unity, for the sake of helping each one of us build each other up in love, to grow in our maturity, to grow to a mature man, it says in verse 13, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then the result of that starts in verse 14. The result of that is that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by every wind and wave of doctrine. So really this beginning of Ephesians 4 is emphasizing unity, but unity based upon the truth and the truth that's supposed to protect us from error, that's supposed to protect us from spiritual attacks from the enemy, that's supposed to allow us to build one another up in love, to build one another up in our growth and how we are being made more Christ-like each and every day. And right there in verse 15, we are to speak the truth in love. So that's where you see the bridge between both unity and diversity. We express unity through love, but we have to do it with, with truth. They go hand in hand. And so as we go back, once again, we'll start back at chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, and I'll just do a quick review of what we've covered before. In part 1, we looked at the first three verses. And in those first three verses, we saw that central commandment. Um, that therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, he says, therefore I, this is building off all the theology that he had mentioned in the first three chapters. He says, as a result of all that I have said, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And with all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we see in verse 1 the central call. We see in verse 2 the manner in which we are to walk. And in verse 3 is the priority that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And when he says to preserve, it means that we are not the ones that establish that unity. We are to preserve the unity that is already created by the Spirit. And then following verse 3, that's when we get into these sevenfold realities. Going to the next slide, starting in verse 3, you see me, you see that I've underlined to preserve the unity of the Spirit because the unity of the Spirit is understood by this sevenfold reality, starting in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. That was part two when we looked at the one body. That's the body of Christ. That's the church. There is both a universal church that consists of all believers all around the world, and there is a local church that we see right here at this church here, and that we see in, in the churches that Paul would address specifically, the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia. He would address very specific bodies of believers. And so we saw that there is one body, but there is also one spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. And we talked about all the various ministries that the Holy Spirit provides to us. He not only baptizes us into the body of Christ, but he illumines us to truth. Um, he distributes gifts to us. He leads us uh, according to the Spirit. He helps us produce fruit of salvation, and he makes us into a dwelling place of God. Those were all things that we had talked about with regards to the Spirit. And we were also called in one hope of our calling. That's what the end of verse 4 says. This idea that together as a church, we all share the same hope. Not a worldly hope, not a hope that is uncertain, but a hope that is absolutely certain as we look forward to the future, that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he will return. He will return and he will bring us to heaven to be with God the Father for all eternity, Amen. where we will live in peace and uh, in the absence of, of the sin and the curse that uh, we see that has tainted our world around us. And then last week we got to verse 5, and I spent the entire hour talking about one Lord. And we just sang a song this morning where we proclaimed Yahweh our God. And last week we saw that the one Lord, this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, but that we saw very clearly from the scriptures that Jesus Christ himself is Yahweh. 
He is Yahweh in human flesh. He is Lord, not just as a title of authority, but he is Lord in terms of the covenant name of God. And we know that only he can provide us the way to salvation. We know that he said that I am the truth and the way and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So we lift up the fact that there is only one Lord. There is only one person who died on the cross. There is only one person that we address as Lord. There is only one person who has lived that perfect life. And there is only one person that we consider the head of the church. It's not me. It's not any of the deacons. But the head of this church right here at Western Avenue is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we seek to follow his call. Well, that brings us to this morning. And the next uh, slide what we see is one faith, one baptism, and I should have also underlined verse 6, but one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So I'm going to look to cover that. We'll see how much I can cover. Um, I might not get to all of it. If, if that's the case, we'll continue on next week. Um, but we'll take a look first at that first point in, that we have underlined there, which is one faith. The next slide, what we see is the first four points that we covered. With regards to what we have studied in the last few weeks, we have learned that amongst these seven divine realities, we function in the same body, we are led by the same spirit, we share the same hope, and we follow the same Lord. All those things are true for all of us who have truly believed. But now, the fifth reality is that we affirm the same faith. We affirm the same faith. And as we look back again at uh, verse 5, after the one Lord, we see one faith. And this order that Paul puts this in, I don't think that this is a random ordering. I think he was very purposeful in how he ordered this. So one faith is connected to the one Lord, and so is the one baptism. But when we talk about one faith, we've got to ask the question, what is meant by one faith? Uh, because this word can actually be used in a few different ways. And we take a look at... The next slide, we see that question, what is meant by one faith? And first, let me just point out that faith can be referred to in the Bible either subjectively or objectively. And now, if I was sitting in a pew with you, I'd be like, huh? What do you mean by that? Well, faith in the Bible can be referred to in either a subjective or objective sense, and they mean slightly different things, though they are tightly connected to one another. The first is subjective faith. Um, subjective faith. This is the most common way that faith is referred to in the Bible. Um, this kind of faith is possessed by each one of us as believers. So when, when you say, I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or, you know, when Jesus says something like, your faith has made you well, that is talking about the faith that we own, the faith that is inside the believer, the faith that we have that is directed at God and Jesus Christ. But this faith can vary based upon person or circumstance. Some people are stronger in their faith than others. We are continuing to grow in our faith. We may have moments where our faith feels a little bit weak, and other times where we feel that our faith is very strong, and I'll provide some examples of that. But the other type of faith is objective faith. Objective faith. And when we talk about objective faith, we're talking about the content of what you believe. Okay, you can say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but what does that mean? If someone asks you, what does that mean that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, then that's a perfect opportunity to open up the gospel, isn't it? And when you open up the gospel, you're basically exposing the content of your faith. And that's what we would refer to as the objective faith. This is the content of what you believe, for instance, that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And unlike subjective faith, which can wax and wane, it can, be, can vary from person to person, this objective faith does not change. Um, it is always the same. It does not vary. It remains fixed, and we are thankful for that. That's why we have this Word of God. The Word of God, we know, is never changing. We know that we can trust these truths in every age, in every culture, in every time period, in every circumstance. So let me give you some examples of each, because we're not used to talking about faith in this way, subjective versus objective. So when we talk about subjective faith, the first verse is Matthew 9, 22, and there are many verses. You can read through the Gospels, and you'll see references like this. But in Matthew 9, 22, we read, But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Now, in this case, this was the lady that had a, had a bleeding issue, and she touched the robes of Jesus Christ, and, and she, was, she was cured. But Jesus says to her, Your faith 
has made you well. This is reflective of what she believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in Matthew 16, 18, I apologize, sounds like the speakers are going in and out, but I'll try to talk loud enough that you can hear regardless. But in Matthew 16, 18, we read, but Jesus, aware of this, said, you men of little faith. And in this case, he's actually talking to his own disciples. Why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? So we see that people can have great faith, they can have little faith, and at various times it can change. So this is subjective faith. It's what's inside of you. You know, and, and there, there is um, there's a dependency upon you and, and how much you believe in any given moment of time. But we saw that Jesus made these kinds of statements often. You'll see them throughout the Gospels. And this subjective faith can be even seen throughout the book of Ephesians. Let's take a look at some verses that we've covered in the past. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and then 15. In verse 13, Paul writes this. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Now I have underlined that phrase, having also believed. Why? Well, because in the Greek, the word believe shares the same word as faith. It's basically the verb form. Um, the, the verb form is pistis, and the, I'm sorry, the verb form is pistuo, and the noun form is pistis. So having also believed, which is the same word as faith, except turned into a verb, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And then verse 15, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Paul is talking about the subject of faith that they possess in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, we have this uh, wonderful statement of salvation. Now it reads, for by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Well, we know that salvation is by grace. It's given to us as a gift. That is affirmed over and over again in that verse. But that salvation goes hand in hand with your faith. You're not just simply saved for no other reason. You're not simply just saved arbitrarily without actually believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that the Lord, that God uses in order to bring you that salvation. So we see many examples of subjective faith. But that subjective faith is not possible. Now, this is the connection, so pay attention. I know this is getting a little technical, but that subjective faith is not possible without the objective faith. In other words, if you don't know what it is that you believe, then how is it that you can believe, right? If you believe, you believe in certain truths. So what is that objective faith? Let's take a look at Jude 3. This is one of the most um, obvious examples, and it's not used often. But here in Jude, we see this statement from Jude. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And here what you see is that the faith is referred to not as belonging specifically to a person, but speaking of the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. This idea is that this faith has been handed down from generation to generation. Now, how does it get handed down? How does the faith get handed down? By sharing what? Yeah, by sharing the word, by sharing the gospel, by sharing the truth. So here Jude is talking about contending earnestly for the faith, meaning the truths that we believe that, that make us Christians. These are the truths that we believe that make us Christians. And I believe even later in Ephesians 4.13 I believe Paul makes reference to this objective faith when he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Now, what's interesting is that this is in the same section that we're reading where we talk about preserving the unity of the spirit. And here it talks about attaining the unity of the faith. We'll get to that when we get there. But we see the unity of the faith. I believe that is referring objectively to the truths that uh, we understand from Scripture that has led us to salvation and the unity that will also result um, as, a, as a result of understanding and growing according to those truths. So let's look again at our passage this morning. And I'm going to make my case that I believe when Paul says one faith, I believe he is talking about the objective faith. So looking again at our passage, um, we see there in verse 5, after one Lord is one faith. 
Now, the reason, one of the reasons why I believe that this is objective is because subjective is dependent upon us. I mean, it's inside of us, and it can wax and wane. It can vary from person to person, and we know that different people are at different points in their walk. Some people are stronger in their faith. Others are weaker. Um, sometimes people can really just have seasons of serious doubt. So I don't think that this unity of the Spirit, which was which was set up by the Spirit and we're called to preserve. I don't believe that this unity that has already exist by the Spirit is dependent upon a faith that's inside of us that can wax and wane. I believe it's more dependent upon the truths that brought us to faith, the, the content of those truths that we see in the Bible. However, like I said, for us to be saved, we must, we must believe those truths. So we have a subjective faith that's based upon an objective faith. And uh, when we think about this objective faith, does, it, does this mean each and every single verse written in the Bible? Well, I, we want to study the entire Bible, but I think when we talk about, when Jude talks about contending for the faith, or when Paul here talks about that there is one faith, I think he is referring specifically to what brought us to salvation. You know, when you came to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, you didn't have to read from cover to cover before you came to that knowledge. The gospel message itself exposed to you who Jesus Christ was. The gospel message itself reminded you, or at least enlightened you, to the fact that you stand guilty before God. That you are a sinner and there is no other way to salvation except through Jesus Christ and his price on the cross. So I believe this refers to the faith that we would all share, that we would all agree and proclaim with regards to our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at this city, for instance, uh, we've got a Presbyterian church right in town. I have faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who go to Presbyterian churches. Now, we know one of the difference between a Baptist church and a Presbyterian church is the mode of baptism, right? We immerse people and they sprinkle now, I would argue that, yeah, immersion is the correct way, and we can argue that from the Greek and all that kinds of stuff, but that difference is not, is not a division between us. It's not going to cause me to say, well, we have a different faith. No, we have the same faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, but like that quote I read earlier from that Catholic friar, that is not the same faith. When you say that you can sin as much as you want, but as long as you have a holy devotion to the Mother Mary, you will never be lost. I, I would say that that is not the same faith. That reflects a different gospel. And so I, I would divide over that. But as we look at the next slide, we talked about affirming the same faith, but we're going to move from point number five to point number six. Point five, we affirm the same faith. Point six, we experience the same baptism. We experience the same baptism. So this is going to be um, a little bit um, technical as well because there's a few different ways to understand baptism. Traditionally, people have looked at this, and especially those in the Baptist denomination have looked at this and say, yeah, this is referring to water baptism. You know, we all have one baptism, and that's the water baptism. That's the ritual cleansing um, that, uh, that really started in the Old Testament, but was applied to believers and, and made into an ordinance for the church. And we see places where that one baptism appears in the scriptures. Take a look at the next verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, we see there um, the call to be baptized. Peter said to them, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Very clearly there, from the start of the church, we see that there was a call to believe, to repent of your sins, to believe in Jesus Christ, but also to be baptized in his name. And then in Acts chapter 8, verse 36 um, this was the Ethiopian. Um, Philip came to the Ethiopian. And verse 36 says, As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? So very clearly, he understood the call to be baptized. He saw the water and wanted to be immersed in that water as a, as a symbol of the faith that he, wanted to, that he had put into the Lord Jesus Christ. But the problem with connecting this to water baptism the problem is that this believer's baptism is merely a symbolic act. Um, by itself, there's nothing mystical about it. You know, I can take a non-believer off the street who does not believe in Jesus Christ, baptize him in these waters, and his standing does not change before God. Amen. Nothing changes unless he actually puts his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the, the, the actual immersion, the actual baptism, there's nothing mystical about it. And for those who do get baptized back here, you know, we have, we have our own um, policies and procedures uh, amongst us as leaders. We don't baptize unless we are, are confident that you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If one of you have not been baptized and come to us and say, I would like to be baptized, we're going to talk to you and make sure that we understand your testimony, make sure you have an understanding of the gospel before we go and baptize you, because we want to be sure that what is seen externally is an accurate reflection of what you believe internally, that the physical act is reflective of what you believe spiritually. So I don't believe that when Paul says one baptism that he's talking about the believer's baptism. This is just a physical act. There is another type of baptism, which is the baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit. And uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, we read, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Well, this is a different kind of baptism. This is not talking about the water baptism. But this is talking about the fact that when you were saved, the Holy Spirit baptized you into the body of Christ. So in other words, when you were saved, you, were, you went through a Holy Spirit baptism that made you a part of the body of Christ, that made you a part of his, his group of believers who are, to, um, who are to support one another, who are to gather together in, in worship. So that is the baptism of the Spirit. But I don't believe that the one baptism refers to the baptism of the Spirit already. Um, the, the problem that I see is that Paul has already mentioned one body and one spirit in this sevenfold reality. And in that one body and one spirit, there's already an implication there of the connection of that bapti- being baptized into the body. And he also, in the case of mentioning one baptism, it comes after mentioning one Lord. So I believe there is a connection to the one Lord. So the solution that I would prefer is a baptism into the death of Christ. And actually, if we think about the physical baptism that we go through, being immersed in water, it actually symbolizes your death, your spiritual death of your old self and your rebirth spiritually in Christ. That's what the believer's baptism symbolizes. And I believe that's what's in mind here. When he says one baptism, all of you have experienced. If you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have died to your old self and you have been made new. You have experienced a spiritual rebirth. I mean, it's similar to John chapter 3, right? When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and Jesus emphasizes the fact that you must be born again. All right, this is, this is the spiritual rebirth. This is the spiritual reality symbolized by water baptism. And this passage, when we read through it, it shows that our baptism into the death of Christ has the purpose that we might walk in newness of life. Let's go ahead and read through this. Starting in verse 3, Paul writes this. Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we, so we too might walk in newness of life. So you see there that the baptism, when Jesus Christ died, our our baptism that we go through, the water baptism, symbolizes the spiritual reality that has already happened. That when you put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, your old self has died along with Christ. All of your sins have been paid for by Christ. And you have been made new spiritually. But you have been made new spiritually with a purpose. You've been made new spiritually with a purpose from God that at the end of verse 4, that we too might walk in newness of life. And it's a reminder to us that as we're going through Ephesians, once again, that central command is to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. So you die to your old self with Christ and, and you are raised up new in new spiritual life. That is the spiritual rebirth. And we do see this truth illustrated in Ephesians as well. Look again at these verses from chapter 2. Chapter 2. Starting in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and it really continues to 3, but we'll just read verses 1 and 2. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. This is going to show that spiritually you were dead. Physically, obviously, you were alive. Spiritually, you were dead. You were dead to God. And then in verses 4 and 5, we read, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, 
What did he do in verse 5? Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he did what? He made us alive together with Christ. That is spiritual rebirth. That is spiritual rebirth. And that is what is symbolized by being baptized into the death of Christ, that we may be raised anew and walk in newness of life. But again, God is made alive for a reason. When Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says God made us alive together with Christ, he did it for the purpose, as we see in verse 10. Ephesians 2, 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. We are created for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would do what? That we would walk in them. That we would walk in them. This helps us to see that while salvation is by faith alone, our works can never achieve salvation. We can never do enough good deeds to pay for the sins that we have committed. Only Christ has done the work and can bear the penalty on the cross for our sins. So our works play no part of our salvation, but works are part of the purpose of our salvation. In other words, it is not the root of salvation, it's not the root of salvation, but rather the fruit of salvation. We are saved in order that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we have been called. And then we see this later in Ephesians chapter 4. We haven't gotten there yet, but it's Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, illustrate this same principle. When Paul says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And verse 24, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is the idea here that as Paul, as we go into Ephesians 4, Paul is going to show us what it means to walk in a manner worthy. Which means we put aside the old and we put on the new. We, we lay aside old habits, which were sinful and rebellious, and we take on new habits, which are righteous and godly and glorifying to God. Amen. That is our call. So let's go back to the original passage and consider why Paul mentions this one baptism as something we need to preserve. As we go back, we see in verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. All right, I mean, all these constitute what he describes as the unity of the spirit in verse three you know all of us as believers whether we're immature in the faith whether we're mature in the faith we all share these things in common in the in the case of baptism it is very important for us to recognize that all of us who have put our faith into the lord jesus christ have died to our old self that we no longer walk the way we once walked but now we are committed to walking in a godly manner that god has appointed for us now, do we do it perfectly? No, no one does it perfectly. I don't do it perfectly. We stumble. We, we struggle. We're going to have seasons where we're going to, we're going to sin and we're going to need to um, repent of those sins. But this idea that we have all experienced the same baptism means that all of us, this is, this is what we all share in common, all of us have died to the old self. And all of us have been raised anew for the purpose of walking with Christ becoming more and more like Christ each and every day. We all share that in common. And that's the one baptism and even going back to the one faith and the body of truth that brought us to salvation, we all affirm the message of the gospel. All of us, not only were we baptized onto the death of Jesus Christ, but we would all affirm the truths that led to us being dead in the old self and made alive spiritually with Christ. We would all, hopefully, if being asked, what is the way to salvation, we would all share the same gospel, the same truths. That is the idea of one faith and now one baptism. And it's all connected to one Lord. Because it was the Lord himself that made the one faith possible. It's the one faith that points to him, and it's the one baptism that is a result of believing. We are all dead to our old self and made alive together with him. But that brings us to the seventh reality, the seventh and final reality. We go from the fact that we affirm the same faith and that we have experienced the same baptism. And now we get to number seven, which is that we worship the same God. We worship the same God. And taking a look at verse six, verse six, we see this. 
one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, throughout these sevenfold realities, now we have seen the full Trinity, haven't we? We saw one spirit being mentioned in verse 4. We saw one Lord being referred to in verse 5. And now we see one God and Father of all in verse 6. We have the full Trinity. And by default, when the New Testament writers mention God, they're referring to God the Father. But we know that Jesus Christ is also God. Amen? Amen. We know that Jesus Christ shares the same name as God the Father. We know that he is exalted up on high. We know that Jesus Christ is the great I Am. That he shares the same essence as God the Father and is worthy of the same worship and respect as God the Father. But all this exaltation of the Lord must not detract us from the fact that God the Father deserves glory as well. God the Father is worthy of our worship. In fact, when we look at the, just the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians, I've created this list, and this is not even an exhaustive list, but the first three chapters actually focus more on what God the Father has done for us than even Jesus Christ. Starting in chapter 1, verse 3, God the Father, he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. In verse 4, he chose us before the foundation of the world. In verse 5, he predestined us to adoption into his family. Verse 7, he forgave us. Verse 11, he gave us an inheritance. Verse 19, he provides us with power. Power to do what? Power to do his will. Power to be able to walk in a manner that is holy. And that power, that's the same power that raised up Jesus Christ and seated him on high with him in the heavenly places. He also made us alive together with Christ. We just saw that verse, chapter 2, verse 5. While we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then verse 10, we just saw that he created good works for us to walk in. And then in chapter 2, verse 16, it is God the Father whom we needed reconciliation to. Jesus Christ came. He died on the cross to reconcile us to God the Father. The Bible doesn't say we needed to be reconciled to Jesus Christ. It says we need to be reconciled to God the Father. It was Jesus Christ who would help us be reconciled. But it is a reminder that now we are reconciled to the one in whom we had been um, apart from, from the beginning when we were born, until the time that we put our faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. At that time, we were reconciled with God the Father. But as I mentioned, this is not even an exhaustive list. You can go through Ephesians and come up with a list probably twice as long as this at least of what God the Father has done for us. And so we want to remember that when Jesus Christ came, he came at the will of God the Father. John 3.16 affirms that it was God the Father who so loved the world that he did what? Sent his only begotten Son, that he who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This reminds me, um, on Christmas, we were celebrating Christmas with the Cheatwoods um, on Christmas morning, and and uh, Brett Hauser was doing a devotion that morning, and he, uh, he mentioned John 3.16. The entire family had John 3.16 memorized. But they had it memorized in the New King James. And so when Brett Hauser affirmed, okay, all of you know John 3.16, right? I raised my hand. I said, I know it in the NASB. And uh, he kind of, um, he just kind of shook his head. And so he had, he had all the kids together recite John 3.16 together. So they're going through it, and, you know, at the very end, it says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have life everlasting, right? And I made sure that after they said life after everlasting, I said eternal life, you know, just to, just to break, up the, uh, break up the unity there. Um, but we know from John three sixteen that it's God the Father that so loved the world that he's the one that sent his only begotten son. It was his love that brought the son to us, and it was the son's devotion to the will of God that led him to the cross to pay for our sins. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus Christ say? Not my will, but what? Your, your will be done. Let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but your will be done. So all of this, all of this is an expression of God's love for us. Jesus Christ came at the will of God the Father. It was his plan that led to our salvation. And we even see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. We saw this last week and when I was talking about the exaltation of Jesus Christ as Yahweh. 
All right, but starting in verse 9 again, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, being Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a blessed confession, right? But at the very end of verse 11, after that we confess Jesus Christ as Lord is to the glory of who? God the Father. When we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, when we exalt him, it brings glory to God the Father. So it's a reminder to us that God the Father, it was him that brought this plan of salvation that Jesus Christ executed to perfection. And while Jesus Christ is to be exalted, he is to be exalted to the glory of God the Father. And so this is really unity for us, because as we consider that we all worship the same God, there are places um, around the world that believe that Jesus Christ is just one of many ways to salvation. There are places in the world, even in my parents' home country of Thailand, where they don't mind accepting Christianity, but to them it's just one of many different faith systems that are all valid. That's not the same God. You know, when you affirm the existence of other gods, we are not worshiping the same God. Because it says here, there's one God and Father who is over all. One God and Father who is over all. And then continuing in Philippians 2, starting in verses 12 to 13, as we consider what it's meant that God is over all and through all and in all, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, we read this. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because verse 13 says, it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in you. Ephesians emphasized the same thing when he talked about the power of God that raised up Jesus Christ, that this power of God is working in you. So this idea of God being through you is this idea that God works through you. He is working through you to accomplish his purpose. He is working through you to accomplish his will. If you have truly confessed the Lord as as Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have truly turned from your sins and turned towards him, you have the promise of the Holy Spirit where God the Father is working through you to accomplish his good purposes. And that is a blessed position to be in, to be used as an instrument by God. But also in John chapter 14, verse 23, when we think about God being in us, we see this verse, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my, keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. To make our abode with him, this is the idea of abiding, it's residing. Okay, God, God the Father and God the Son both say that they will reside in us. And how do they do that? They do that through the Holy Spirit. But what we see when we see that God the Father is overall, that's very easy to see because God the Father is the one that created the plan of salvation. He is the one that from the very beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. He he is the one that, that brought judgment upon those who rebelled against him. And he is the one that sent his son. He is overall. He had the supreme authority from the very beginning. And Jesus Christ willingly gave that up in order to follow the will of God the Father, but now is exalted and has the full authority alongside with God the Father. But he is over all, and God is also through all in how he works through us. He works through us with his power. And he is in all that, in that he abides, he resides in us through the Holy Spirit. Because remember what Ephesians said. Ephesians said the Spirit is building us into a temple of who? Of God. We're being built into a temple of God in the Holy Spirit. So God is over all, he is through all, and he is in all. So going back to the verse that we just looked at, verse 6, once again, part of preserving the unity of the Spirit in verse 3, we see in verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what we see here from verses 4 through 6 are seven divine realities that apply to all of us. And I've said this before, but these divine realities, even just one of these divine realities, are infinitely more important than any secular interest that you can share with other people. 
any secular interests at all. In fact, you know, a few weeks ago, I mentioned my love for basketball, and I brought up the Los Angeles Lakers, right? And, and then he immediately went on a four-game skid where they lost four in a row. But that night, I tell you what, that night, we came to the evening service, and Donna Wetjen came into the evening service wearing a Boston Celtics jacket. And that was a challenge to me, right? So she's a sister in Christ. I love her, but you got to do something about that jacket. And earlier this week, um, her husband, David, pulled me aside and said, Pastor, I need to let you know that um, in terms of the weather, this is as good as it's going to get. And from here, it starts to get warmer. And I said, that is not encouraging. <laughs> Look, let's encourage each other with these truths, right? Now, the good news is that we know what it feels like in the summer. You know, right? I mean, we started here right in the middle of that summer. So we know that we can survive it. And we are looking forward to the fact that we'll have our home by that time. We'll be right here in Brawley, we'll have our home, and, and at some point uh, very soon we're going to have a big old housewarming party and everyone's going to be invited. Maybe not all at one time, but we'll, we'll figure something out there. But, but these seven realities that we see are seven realities that are far more important than anything that we can share in common with anyone outside. And so when we think about our unity within the body of Christ, when we think about our love for one another, when we think about who we spend time with, who we get encouragement from, you know, I would really encourage you to spend more and more time with one another. I, I understand you may have friends um, who go to other churches, and that's great. You know, that, that's also fellowship. But if you're here in this body, then this body is the best opportunity that we have to build one another up. You know, Paul wrote to individual churches to build one another up, and that's what we are called to do as well. And so I would encourage you to spend more time with one another. Be an encouragement to one another. Know how to pray for one another. You know, this is why we have our prayer group meetings. We pray for one another on Wednesday evenings, but we also gather together on Friday mornings. Because the more time we spend in prayer for one another, the more our hearts are knit together. The more we can start following up with one another about what's going on in each other's lives. We really should be aware of what's going on in each other's lives. And I know for some of you, some of you are afraid. I get it. Some of you are afraid of opening up. Some of you don't want other people to know some of the details of your life. And I get that, but I would just ask, just spend some more time with the body of Christ. And as you start to build up that trust in one another, as you start to spend more time with one another, you'll naturally start to open up to one another. You know, and we have to protect one another. You know, later on in this, uh, this book, I mean, Paul's going to talk about gossip. We need to be careful about gossiping. You know, when we start to reveal things about each other to each other, we expect that to be held in confidence. And we expect that we're not going to use that as a means of criticizing or, or, or showing to other people just um, how much of a wreck a certain person is. But rather, we're going to encourage each other and build each other up. Because quite frankly, none of us have it all together as it appears on the outside. I mean, we, all of us are very good at performing in a way that makes us look more holy than we really are. You know, all of us have our weaknesses. All of us have our difficulties. All of us have our doubts. All of us have our struggles. You know, but when we reflect on these seven realities, these seven realities should be realities that we remind ourselves, no matter how difficult another person within the body might be to communicate with or to understand or to get along with, remind yourself that we share these seven things in common. And these seven things tell me that we ought to spend more time with each other. And if you are struggling to remember these seven things, I would hope and pray that someone in the body will help you to remember these things. And vice versa, if you find someone who's struggling to remember these things, if they're getting lost in their own trials and their own anxieties, that you can remind them of these blessed truths. That we are walking in newness of life. You know, that whatever trial that we have does not compare. It does not compare to the glory that awaits us when God calls us into his presence. The greatest problem that we have in this life is not at our job. It's not even within our families. It's not within our financial struggles. The greatest problem that we had in this life is that we were separated from God the Father. And that problem has been resolved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me encourage you that you need to be reconciled to God the Father. You are separated from God because of your sinful nature. And that was true for all of us. And the only way that you can be righteous before God is not by any amount of good works that you can perform. Because even if you were to go to a courthouse, if you were to stand before a good judge and you were tried for a crime that you committed, 
You should be convicted of that crime and you should pay the punishment of that crime no matter how good you may have been in the past. That's what a good judge does. And our God is holy. He is perfectly righteous. He is perfectly just. He must punish iniquity. And no one will be able to stand before God on his own. That's why when we proclaim one Lord, we're talking about the fact that only one man, Jesus Christ, who was God eternal, come down, incarnated into human flesh. He is the only one who has ever lived a perfect life. And he is the only one who could have walked towards the cross and paid the eternal punishment for our sins. So you too can enjoy this hope of the future. You too can be assured that you have eternal life, that you have salvation, that you will be with God the Father if you recognize your need for the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. Because we know that we have been separated from the one true God and that it is the one Lord who came in order to die for us, that through the one faith we would believe in him, that we would be baptized in the one baptism onto his death, And that we would receive the one spirit and be baptized into the one body. That we may have one hope in the future. That is the promise of salvation. If you're willing to turn away from your sins and put your faith into the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just as a recap, these are the seven commonalities phrased another way. We function in the same body. We are led by the same spirit. We share the same hope. We follow the same Lord. We affirm the same faith. We experience the same baptism. We worship the same God. And in terms of principles for application, I would just encourage you, if you have not given time to really think about these realities, I would encourage you to meditate and think upon them. I mean, we went through, what is this, the fourth part of uh, of this series, just covering these realities of unity. Um, Three sermons in particular to cover these seven points. But, but unity is important, and if you have not thought about or meditated upon these realities, I would encourage you to do so. Spend some time really meditating upon them, and then consider how to encourage one another with these realities. Because when you're down, when you're feeling anxiety, when you're struggling, it shouldn't be secular people that give you encouragement. It should be, be people within the body of Christ, and it should be based upon these realities that give us that encouragement. And then examine your role within the body. Are you preserving the unity of the spirit? Because that's what we're called to do. Are you preserving the unity of the spirit by upholding these seven truths and being united with each other with these seven truths? Are you loving one another? Your love for one another is by your concern, your care, putting their interests before yours. Remember, with all humility and gentleness, with with all patience, enduring with one another out of love. Are you praying for one another's needs? And you should be more aware of what each of you need prayer for. And you should be lifting one another up in prayer. And that's the final point. Do you know each other's needs? If you don't, get to know one another. Spend some time. Have coffee with someone. Do that starting this week. Reach out to someone that you haven't talked to in a while. Reach out to someone within the body of Christ. Have lunch or something. You know, get together and just get to know one another. You're going to spend an eternity with each other. You might as well start to get to know each other now. Amen? Amen. And I think all of this lends perfectly into our observance of the Lord's table. But let me go ahead and close out in prayer, and then I'll call the deacons forward.